It's going to be exciting. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And I know that the words and the scriptures are in your order of service. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. But I hope through the study of Ephesians, you've been bringing your Bible so you can mark or note and uh, follow along. And let me say uh, an admirable thank you to dads and husbands for coming back this week after we talked about wives last week. And I warned you I was going to talk about husbands this week. I figured we'd all have all women in here with tape recorders and notepads, but I uh, appreciate you, I guess, having it on Father's Day helps, and uh, that, that helps a lo- go a long way to getting you here this morning, but thank you for coming this morning. As I was looking and preparing for all of these passages, especially the end of Ephesians chapter 5, I came across this definition of marriage, which I liked. It said, marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that is too warm beside someone who is sleeping in a room that is too cold. Amen? Sounds like mutual submission to me. I don't know about you, but that fit well. I also came across an article that uh, really goes along when we talked the last couple of weeks about the stages of marriage and where marriage is uh, from the old Saturday Evening Post that identified uh, the stages of marriage, but it did it uniquely by relating how a husband responds to a wife that has a cold in the first seven years of their marriage. And uh, they use this to explain how marriages uh, differ through the years. So I'll just read it for you. These are the responses of a husband who finds out his wife has a cold. In the first year, he says, honey, I'm really worried about you, my baby, my doll. I don't know if anybody says that anymore, but my baby, my doll, you have a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things and stuff is going around. So I'm calling the hospital now and you're going to check in for a general checkup. You need the bed rest anyway. And I know the food's lousy, but I've already called ahead and got permission. I can bring you takeout from your favorite restaurant. Second year. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've already called the doctor and insisted he rush over here and check on you. Now, don't worry about anything. You go and get in bed and let me take care of you. Third year. Maybe you better lay down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you're feeling lousy. I think I'll get you something. Do you, do you know if we have any canned soup in the house? Fourth year. Now, look, dear, you need to be sensible. After you've fed the kids and gotten them into bed, you'd better lie down for a few minutes. You see a pattern developing? Fifth year. Do you need me to get you an aspirin or something? Sixth year. I wish you'd take something instead of sitting around here barking like a seal. We can't watch TV. (laughs) Gets even worse. Seventh year. For Pete's sake, can you go in the other room? You're going to give to me. (laughs) Now, if you can't say amen, you can say ouch, right? Probably hits a little closer to home than we realize. You see, these last couple of weeks, we, in our study in the book of Ephesians, we've been walking through Ephesians, and we've kind of camped here in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is talking about what a spirit-filled marriage looks like, what uh, a marriage with Jesus Christ at the center is supposed to be like. And he's identifying the husband's role and the wife's role and how they come together to form a biblical marriage. And as we've seen through our whole study of Ephesians chapter 5, that All of this is based on Christ 
being the center. If Christ isn't the center of your relationship, all of these things that we're going to talk about won't matter. You can try them. Uh, you can make a list, all the things we talked about last week with the wives and the things this week with the husbands. You can make a list and try to do some of these things. But if Jesus Christ is your, not, your motivation, you're going to give up. And a lot of times, if we try things in our own strength, and after they don't work, we get even more frustrated, and the relationship is even more frazzled than it was before we tried. So you have to understand that Jesus Christ is the center of it all. Paul's been trying to tell us uh, how we can live sanctified, living the life that he's called us to, that God has created us to be. And here in 5 of Ephesians, he's trying to lay out how that looks in relationship. And he sets the whole standard Back up in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, he says, don't be drunk with wine. And the emphasis there is not really the idea of drunk with wine. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, God's will for you and I is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not about getting a second blessing or getting something extra. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to have every area of our life. It's not you getting more of Him. It's Him getting more of you. And when He has more of you, you become more filled with the Holy Spirit. And the problem with that is the reason He doesn't have all of us is because of our selfishness, because of our pride. And one of the greatest barriers to a healthy and successful marriage is pride. Almost every couple that I ever counsel, almost every couple that, that I talk with or individuals that I talk with that are having problems in their marriage, you can almost always point it to some area of pride or selfishness. And you see, to allow Christ to be the center of your life, to be the center of your relationships, it means you have to die to self. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that the other foundational point of this whole passage is Ephesians 5.21. Submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. If you take that out of this following passage, the following passage doesn't mean the same thing. That's how so many people misread it. And we, we went over it a couple of weeks ago. And if you haven't been here, you can go online and listen to our podcast and, and kind of catch up. And I'd encourage you to do that. But you see, the idea that we are called to mutual submission in marriage, that I am supposed to be meeting the needs of my spouse, and she is supposed to be meeting my needs, putting my needs first as I put her needs first. That is mutual submission. That is submitting myself, dying to self, to her best interest. We learned last week in Genesis chapter 2, we, we talked about the foundations of the building blocks of marriage, what God ordained marriage to be. And Adam and Eve had it great in the garden and everything was wonderful. And then we learned in Genesis chapter 3 that sin entered into the garden. And when sin came in, there was a barrier dropped and, and all of those things that became uh, natural, all those things that we were created in relationship to be, intimacy, uh, oneness, a partnership, all of those things were severed and now those things are difficult. See, intimacy is a struggle for marriage. Intimacy, opening yourself up, sharing everything, working together as one, as a partnership. But we also learned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that God cursed Eve and Adam as he cursed their marriage with sin. See, the consequences of sin wasn't just on us as individuals. He also cursed the marriage. And he said, wives, you will be controlling to your husband. And husbands, you will be demeaning or demanding to your wives. You see, no longer was it going to be the way God created it to be. And so what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 5 is he is trying to redeem marriage from the curse. He's trying to help you and I experience marriage like it was meant to be in the garden. 
Where intimacy came natural. Because you see, if you and I will submit to one another, if I'm submitting to my spouse's needs, then intimacy and partnership are a natural following. Last week, we looked at this idea of mutual submission. Paul breaks down what that means in the role of wives. And so last week we talked about women and how you can seek to meet the needs of your husband. How you can seek to put his needs first. And what were those greatest needs? And we learned that submission is not this bad word that people use it today. It's not demeaning in it and it's not controlling. Instead, submission is always freeing. Submission brings freedom. Because you see, when you put the needs of your spouse before your own, it will free you to love them, to serve them. When you're not always worried about my way and my wants and my wishes and, and, and my timetable, it will free you up. And this morning what we're going to do as we continue is Paul's going to take this idea of submission and now he's going to define what it means to men. He's going to take it and define it in how a man can submit to his wife just as the wife submit to the husband. See, they don't operate in a vacuum. They depend on one another. And if one is not doing the other, then a marriage will not work. It'll always be banging heads. And I told you last week, now if you're married to a spouse that is a non-believer, if you're married to somebody that is not following godly principles, it doesn't mean you give up. What it means is you allow the Holy Spirit to teach you as you try to be the godly husband or the godly wife and allow God to use you through these principles to help change them as he changes you. Now you need to understand as we come to this passage, uh, apparently, as I told you last week, men are a little slower than women. Uh, So whereas women got three verses, men, we get eight verses because God really understood that we need a little more explanation. So we're going to start reading in Ephesians chapter 5 and looking at uh, really starting 21 and really 25 is where key today. And it's not an accident that this is um, a message for Father's Day. I didn't have it planned in my master plan when I was looking ahead and say, oh, well, on Father's Day, I'm going to talk to husbands. But I think it's in God's plan because, you see, you need to understand to be a great father, you've got to be a great husband. And the greatest way for you to be the best father you can be is to be the godly husband that God called you to. So it's not an accident that we come to some of these principles. Now, uh, as we look at this, remember verse 21 follows all of this. So I'm going to start there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then down to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave him up for her. Make her holy, cleansing by the washing and water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or without wrinkle, without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Then verse 31, which really goes back to husbands and wives again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. It's the same passage we learned, Genesis 2, verse 24. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. He ends there 
with the two greatest needs. The greatest need for a wife is to know that she's loved. The greatest need for a husband is to know he's appreciated, to know he's respected. And so he ends there by throwing that caveat back up to the first. Now you remember when we started this, I shared with you that marriage is the main battlefield of spiritual warfare in almost all of our lives. The greatest place of spiritual warfare for you and I is in the home because the enemy knows if he can destroy the home, He can weaken our message. He can weaken our resolve. He can weaken our power. And the enemy would love to see our marriages remain under the curse. He'd love to see them stay in the status quo, to see pride rule and selfishness abound, to see anger and grudges take over our marriages. The devil knows that if he can hurt our home, he can hurt us everywhere. He can attack us anywhere. And it all starts with dads. That's why it's not an accident that the devil points his greatest attacks at fathers, at husbands, at dads. But the good news, as I already told you, is the curse has already been broken. That you and I, through the power of Jesus Christ, not only can we overcome what the devil curses us with sin in our marriage, but we can learn to live it and we can learn to walk it. And in that power, we can learn to do the things that he says to do. Now, as I said, he gives us eight verses because he knows that men are slow and he knows that men take a little more time. And then he helped us out a little more. Instead of just giving us verses, he painted a picture. He gave us an object lesson. Men like pictures, right? Shinier the better, the, the prettier the better. We can understand pictures. And even in Paul's day, he knew that we needed pictures. So he said, let me paint you a picture of how a husband submits to his wife. And in this picture, you've got Jesus Christ and you've got his bride, the church. And you see what Paul is saying is every way that Jesus leads the church, you husbands are to lead in the home. And everything that Jesus gives to the church, everything that he feels to the church, you husbands are to feel towards your wives. You're to give to your wives. And so it's a great picture so that we don't lose sight. Because you see, when we say, husbands, love your wife, every one of us in here would say, oh, I love my wife, right? We say that all the time. That word is the most overused and least understood word in our language today. You're going to go out later and you're going to get something to eat. Hopefully your family will take you somewhere nice, husbands, and you'll get to go eat somewhere. And you'll have chicken or you'll have a hamburger. You'll have a steak. And one, somebody at the table is going to take a bite and say, I love this. See, that's not the same word as what we're discovering it means to love your wife. You see, God is not saying, husbands, love your wives the same way you do that wonderful steak that you had last night. For some of you, that'd be a step up, right? And so he says, let me paint you a picture. How do you love your wives? You love her the way Christ loves the church. But before he gets to that, back up when he was talking to wives, he said, wives, you need to understand that husbands are to be the head of the household. They're to be the spiritual leader. That doesn't mean that you're any less. We talked last week. Doesn't mean that you're not have a say. Doesn't mean that you don't help in part of the leading and the raising and the guiding. But it means when it comes down to it, the spiritual leader in the home is supposed to be the husband. And so husbands, I'm only going to give you two points. Last week I gave the wives five or six, but I, I think you can hang on to two because I want you to see how does Christ lead the church? The first way Christ leads the church is he is a godly spiritual leader. 
And husbands, you are called to be a godly spiritual leader in the home. Now, how does Christ lead the church? Does Christ lead the church by beating us over the head? No, he doesn't. Does Christ lead the church by guilting us? No, guilt never gets you anywhere. Does Christ lead the church by forcing and coercing? Does Christ come down and say, listen, this is what I want you to do. This is how you follow. No, how does he do it? He does it the same way he led the disciples. Do you remember how he led the disciples? He showed them what to do. He helped them do it. And then when they got confused, when they began to argue over who was the most important, you remember what he did? Pulled up his robes and he tied them around his waist and he got down on his hands and his knees and he started washing their feet to teach them what's really important. See, husbands, you're to be head of the house. You're to lead the house. You're to be the spiritual leader in the house. But you're to do it with a servant heart see the passion that Christ has for his church you're to have for your wife and for your family and in leading them you lead out of that passion with a heart of service see leadership is not leading by dictatorship it's not leading by coercion it's not leading by domination it's not trying to force your way on, on somebody else. It's not taking the Bible and trying to guilt your spouse into acting a certain way or doing certain things. See, submission, the reason submission is so powerful is because it's freely given. It's not forced or guilted or coerced. See, the Bible says Jesus freely gave himself. He didn't have to. He didn't even have to come to earth. Said he humbled himself and came in human form. Why? Because he loved us. That's what made his submission so incredible. And you see, what makes a husband's submission so incredible is when he, out of his love and compassion, gives of himself to his spouse. That's powerful. Not because he thinks he has to. Not because that's the way his dad did it. Or because a friend next door does it. Because that's what God tells him to do. And so he willingly does it. It drives me crazy. I listen to these guys that are caught up in the, the patriarchal, uh, you know, movement, this idea of headship movement that the husband, you know, I hear these guys say, listen, it's my biblical right to be head of the home. No, it's not. It's not a right. It's a privilege. It's something you earn. Husbands, you need to be the person God has created you to be so that your wife can lovingly follow you. She's looking for a spiritual leader. Your kids are looking for a spiritual leader. Too many husbands are trying to be the boss in the house instead of be the leader in the home. There's a difference. Gordon Selfridge, who was an American who went to England and started one of the largest department stores in England in the 1900s, the 20th century, used to describe how his business grew so fast. He said, because there's a huge difference between being the boss and being a leader. And I think it's relevant for our homes today. He says, a boss drives people. A leader coaches people. A boss depends on his authority. The leader depends on trust. The boss inspires fear. The leader inspires enthusiasm. The boss says I. The leader says we. The boss fixes blame for mistakes. The leader fixes mistakes. 
The boss knows how it's done. The leader shows how it's done. The boss says, you go. The leader says, follow me. See, why don't you understand, the greatest problem in our homes today is not unsubmissive wives. It's husbands with warped sense of leadership or no leadership at all. We've abdicated it. There's these extremes. And so we just said, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to do it. And so I'm just going to give up. Well, let me give you a chance to understand that it starts with you loving your wife. And seeking God's leadership and seeking God's will for your home and for your marriage. When you begin to do that, all of a sudden things begin to change. You see, being the head of your house is not a chain of command. It's a chain of service and responsibility. It's not having someone cater to your needs. It's about you catering to their needs. See, being the spiritual leader in your home is not about you just praying for your family. It's about you praying with your family and over your family and teaching your family to pray. It's not just you opening up and reading Bible stories. It's about teaching them why these Bible stories are so incredible and teaching them to love the Word of God and to fall in love with what His truths teach. See, being the spiritual leader is not about you forcing your family to come to church. Some of us have been forced all our lives That doesn't work out. You know how you can be the spiritual leader in your home instead of forcing them to come to church? Why not teach them why church and the faith community and worship is so vital to the life of a Christian? Don't just teach them. Show them. It's a priority to me. Cultivate an atmosphere in your home where grace rules, where forgiveness rules, where uh, unforgivable uh, sins don't exist anymore. Where you love them unconditionally. When you begin to create that kind of atmosphere, guess who they get drawn to? Jesus. That's what it means to be a spiritual leader. It's not about telling, it's about showing. It's about giving. And when you respect and love and serve your wife, those things are going to happen. How do we love our wives that way then? We're to be the spiritual leader, yes, but most importantly, we're to love our wives unconditionally. That's what most of this passage is talking about. You see, he set some specific parameters back to that picture of how Christ loves the church. Now, I doubt there's a husband in this room that wouldn't say they love their wife, but the question is, do they know it, and do they see it, and do they feel it? See, Paul uses a very specific word here. It's of the four words for love we have in the New Testament, the Greek words. He uses agape, agapeo, which is always the word used to describe how God loves us, how Jesus loves you. See, it's not a fleshly love. It's not an emotional love. It's not a friendship love. It's not a whirlwind caught up in some kind of emotional love. It's a conscious, self-giving love. It's a decision and a commitment to love unconditionally no matter what. 
It's a love that that Christ gives to the church. It's a love that we are called to give to our spouses. And and he goes on to explain what that looks like. How does Christ love the church? Well, the first thing he says is he loves the church sacrificially. said Christ gave himself for who? For the church. Husbands, we are called to love our wives sacrificially, giving ourselves up for her. So does that mean I'm supposed to be willing to die for her? No, you're supposed to be willing to live for her. You're supposed to be willing to die to yourself for her. You see, for you to love your spouse sacrificially means that you're willing to take all of those things that used to be more important and let her know they are no longer more important than her. That you love her more than your hobbies and more than your buddies and more than your job and more than your ambition. That you are willing to die to all of those selfish desires out of love for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that shows her, that tells her how precious she is to you. Romans 5.8 explains this love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this kind of sacrificial love can't be earned, can't be deserved. It's not something you say, oh, I'll love her if she does this, or I'll love her when she acts this way. No, it is a love that is given in spite of how they act, in spite of what they look like. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved you. Because while you were still cursing him, while you still had your back to him, while you still thought you had all the answers, guess what? He loved you and gave himself for you. And he says, that's the way you're supposed to love your wife, husband sacrificially. Then he says in verse 26, to make her holy and cleansing her by washing of water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church. You see, what he's trying to say is you need to have not just a, a sacrificial love, but a sanctifying love. It's not saying, now some people I know take this passage and say, listen, there's an umbrella and the wife is under the umbrella and the wife is saved under the influence of the husband and it's all dependent on how the husband acts and if the husband does this. The wife, that's not what he's saying. You are not sanctified because your husband is sanctified. You are sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ and your passion to follow him, your decision to follow him. What he's saying is, is that we are to love our spouses so much that we guard their righteousness that we guard their purity, that we guard their holiness. See, this kind of love is is an elevating love. It lifts them up. It makes them want to follow Jesus more because when they see how we love them, they want to know what kind of love that is. They want to know where they can get that kind of love. It's always a love that expresses itself to lift them up. Basically, you could say, She is supposed to be more like Christ because she married you. That's a tall order. Not because of you, but because of the love you have for her. That should make her more like Jesus. You see, sanctifying biblical love will always lift you up. It's always going to compliment you. Remember we talked the scripture that God created us for uh, companionship, but he also created 
created us to complement one another, a helper, a helpmate, to come alongside and bring out that which was inside of us and make us more like Jesus. Those things we didn't even know we could do or say or be. Our spouses, through their love, does that for us. Listen, and, and this is free. Teenagers, young adults, if you're in a relationship and you're throwing around the word love and that person is pulling you down or pulling you away from Jesus Christ, that is not godly love and that's not God's will for your life. I get young adults that will come to me and say, oh, you know, yes, we're having sex outside of marriage. Yes, we, we're living together outside of marriage. But we love each other and we think this is God's will. It's not God's will. Because you see, God's will is that you follow his word and that you always lift each other up more to Jesus Christ. And if someone, if you're in a relationship and it's not lifting you up to Jesus, you need to examine the relationship. See, husbands, we are called to love our wives with a sacrificial love and a sanctifying love. And then in verse 28, he says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see, we are to also have a sustaining love. It says, Love your spouse the way you love yourself. What that says is we need to take care of the needs of our wives in the same manner that we take care of our own personal needs. That means it needs to be a love that provides, a love that sustains them. That doesn't mean we give them everything that they want. Sorry, ladies. You can try as long as it doesn't put you in debt. But it does mean that we give them everything that they need. And I know sometimes in our culture today that that means that the wife has to work. And I don't have a problem with that. That means she helps meet the needs of the home. But the wife still needs to know that you are doing all that you're doing to provide for you and provide for your family. Why? Not because it puts numbers in a bank account. Not because it allows you to go eat at a nicer restaurant or drive a better car. You're doing it because you love her and you want to provide everything that she needs. How does Jesus provide for the church? He didn't give us everything we want. I wish we could just make a list and say, God, here's what we want at First Baptist Blowing Rock. That's not what he does. But he always provides for our needs. And most of the time, he provides for our needs before we even know we had the need. He's already sending people. It's amazing. It, it seems like when we say, well, we need somebody to lead this, or we need somebody to teach there, and we're going to begin to pray that way. All of a sudden, somebody in the church that God's called in the church will stand up and say, listen, God's gifted me with this. Say, man, what a coincidence. We were just praying. No, it's not a coincidence. God was providing for the need before you ever knew it. That's why whenever we have a great big offering and God blesses us and it's, it's kind of out of whack and, and it, it doesn't fit with what the normal giving is, I always get on my knees and pray, God, what is going to happen that we're going to have to spend money on? Because he knows. He provides just what we need. And a husband, you are to love your wife in a way that anticipates her needs and provides those needs for her and sometimes provides those wants for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's a sanctifying love. It's a sustaining love. And then the last thing he says here, he quotes Genesis chapter 2. It says, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. It goes back to that permanence again. Remember when we talked about Genesis 2, we talked about this being an idea of glued together, knitted together. You see, she needs a secure love. 
a love that helps her to understand that you're committed to her irregardless of what happens. Because see, as I told wives that what your husband's greatest needs are, husband, one of your wife's greatest needs is for security. To know that she has a home. That's why homes and houses and places, it's not just because they're nesters. I go, oh, they're nesters. They just want to know. They want to know that they have a secure place to raise their family. They want to know that you're going to take care of them, that you're going to protect them. And they need to know that you are in the relationship to those words that you said when you stood before each other and your families and a preacher, for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. See, a wife needs to know that you are committed totally to her. She needs to have that security to understand that she is yours. Jesus makes it very clear to you and I that we have security in Jesus Christ. Romans says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through a whole litany of things. And he says, no, nothing can separate you from Jesus' love. Why? Because it's not based on your actions. He loves you and forgives you based on his love and who he is. And husbands, our wives need to know that regardless of how their hairstyle changes or how much weight they gain or lose or what jobs they have or how much money they bring in or how many things that they do that we may not like or want them to do, it doesn't change the fact that we are committed and that we love them with everything that we have. That's what they need to feel. That's what they need to sense. That's what they need to understand. Husbands, your wives need to feel that same security that we feel as Christians, a total commitment. It needs to be demonstrated to them daily. I hear men say, but, but listen, I owe it to myself to be happy. No, you owe it to yourself to be holy. You owe it to God to be holy and to commit yourself to the commitments that you've made. Men will say, or women will say, but we're no longer in love. I just don't think I love them. You see, you need to understand, love does not sustain commitment. Commitment sustains love. If you are only in this relationship for as long as you feel something, guess what? Ain't going to last. And I don't want to throw cold water on some of you that are still on the romance stage. Bless your hearts. Praise the Lord. Love it, eat it up, enjoy it. But there's going to come a day where you're going to wake up and you are not going to feel in love anymore. But you see, sacrificial love and sanctifying love and sustaining love and secure love aren't based on feelings. They're based on a commitment that we make one to another and that we make to God. And we need to help our spouses understand that we are committed. All couples have problems, but not all have the commitments to work through them. Marriage takes work. It's not easy. I wish I could stand up here and tell you it's easy. And everything, every day is going to be roses. And, and if you love Jesus, then you're not going to have any problems. That's just not reality. 
Because of that little curse back in Genesis 3, it's a battle. But if you and I can take these principles and and selflessly give of ourselves, die to that pride, die to that selfishness, and put the needs of our spouses before anything else, mutual submission, then I guarantee you God will change your marriage. See, it's a spiritual battle, but here's the key, and and I'm done. Here's the principle. The Bible tells us in spiritual battles, we battle not with flesh and blood. You see, your battle is not with your spouse. It's with principalities of the air. Our battle is against the enemy. And right now in America, he is throwing everything at a marriage. He is throwing everything at husbands and wives because the enemy knows that if he can destroy marriage, then he can take the picture of Christ and the church and distort it. But the good news for us is greater than he that is in me than he that is in this world. And it doesn't matter where your marriage is this morning. It doesn't matter how much of the pits it is or how much you're ready to walk out or walk away. There is hope because Jesus Christ can renew and reinvigorate and reinstate those things if you're committed to him. If you'll trust his word. If you'll take these words and these principles and make them a part of your life. Husbands, God made your wife to be your companion, to compliment you. And I promise you, standing on the word of God, if you will cherish her, if you will protect her, if you will honor her, if you will love her the way Christ loves the church, as you strive to be the kind of leader he's called you to be in your home, you will receive blessings beyond measure, not only from her, but from God's own hand. God wants to empower and lead and help you. Lead and love your wife. But you have to be willing. If you are, your marriage will never be the same. Let's pray.